Hello, welcome back to Out of Curiosity, our podcast where we are seeking biblical clarity for modern questions. It's not that hard to say, so I said it debatable. there. Debatable. Uh, it's maybe, debatable. Maybe you, maybe you can get that down. Debatable. Um, uh, my, name is, my name is Garland, and I'm joined by my good friend from across the country. Cameron. Cameron Hager. Glad to have you. So as we're as we are recording this, uh, it's the it's late August here. And it's um, also late August here. <laughs> why I said that. Thank you for clarifying what time of the year it is in, 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 in Arkansas, Arkansas relative to Oregon. <laughs> it's late August. <laughs> This is a good start to this one. Yeah, it's great. Um, it, we, we, well. probably need, we probably need a little bit of lightheartedness <laughs> here because the topic, the topic I think is it's always important and it's always serious. Um, I think it becomes even more so when some of the tension ratchets up, especially in America. There's been a lot of tension lately. Um, I think it's a tension that uh, maybe Americans at least feel is unique to them, but I think Christians for all time have maybe had uh, this same tension, in fact, ratcheted up even more. But here's the question. How should Jesus' followers interact with the culture or with the world around them? In the New Testament, the word, the word culture is not used. It's often called the world. Um, and that could be a very kind of Christian-y way to say that. So we'll keep it simple. How should Christians engage culture? What does it look like for them to engage culture? And I know there's a bunch of different ways that I, I think a Christian could answer this. And so I'm, I'll channel two just by way of anecdote, um, and then I'll let you kind of set the stage for us. Um, at times, I both hear from Christians um, this sort of, we need to bunker down, um, don't watch movies that come from the culture, only listen to Christian music, only go to church, only be friends with Christians. Um, it's almost like a monastic way to see this. And then I see and hear from other Christians that um, when you look at their lives and what they believe, you can't really tell a difference between them and maybe their neighbor who's not a Jesus follower. So what's the, how do we navigate this? And I know from a lot of people, this gets down to like the basics of like their regular old life. Um, and so this is a very, very practical, real world, real life kind of question. And so, yeah, help us out, Cameron. Yeah, well, I would maybe want to start by bringing a little more clarity because these ideas, these ideas of like what you described as like you're not really distinct from the world or you're just so fearful and separatistic from the world, they're, they're ideas that both have roots in the scriptures or even in the New Testament specifically. And I think it's really funny to read a couple of passages, uh, one from the Gospel of John and one from the letter of First John side by side. So I'm going to do that real quick. The first I'm going to read is 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. So same, same author probably, at least that's what most, yeah, most likely. think. Same author writing both of these things. Okay, same author, different, different, you know, different genres, but let's hear them. Okay, in 1 John he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world's passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So hard words there. If anyone yeah. loves the world, listen to that, the love of the Father is not in him. So a very skeptical, <laughs> like world skeptical passage. Now let's right. read John again when he's uh, he's describing the words of, of Jesus in John 3, 16. I'm sure most of you have heard this passage before. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So I'm just struck by the comparison here because in the yeah, first right. passage, you literally have a connection <laughs> to the father right there. Like if anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. You turn around and it's for God, the father, <laughs> so loved so the, loves world. the world. Yeah. And so you just have to out of the gate say that right there is why um, this tension exists and why we see different expressions of Christianity, different traditions, different individuals likely to kind of fall into one bucket or the other. It may be that they haven't studied the other passage. It may be that they just prefer one over the other, but um, those are both there. And so we have to, uh, we have to acknowledge that tension and we're not, I would, I think most people intuit, like there's nothing inherently contradictory about these two passages, but there is a tension that is the subject of this podcast. Like how do we take these two competing ideas and make a coherent worldview mm-hmm. and way of living for us as Christians? <laughs> That's mm-hmm. the question. Yeah, so so what would be maybe the two, if there's two ditches, how would you describe the two ditches? I mean, I sort of alluded to them, but what, what would the ditches be in light of hearing those passages? Where do you see it maybe in Portland? And I, I, I bet we see similar things down here in the South. Sure. I mean, I think it's anytime you take one of the, the main idea of one of those passages to the exclusion, like the complete exclusion of the other. So one of the ditches I think we could easily fall into is just a basic hatred of the a, a all encompassing hatred of the world. You're skeptical towards everything, as you said, an asceticism, almost a monastic type of lifestyle. You think you're, you just view everything around you. And tragically, this can even come down to the created world itself. People read, you know, do not love the world. And they think, man, my home's in heaven. That's where I'm going. Even like in extreme cases, like <laughs> the beauty of a of a tree could be in some way a spiritual threat to me or a distraction from what really matters. It can creep all the way down into just like, man, everything is bad. Everything mm-hmm. is threatening. It, the mo- it's the mom on the water boy. <laughs> everything, <laughs> everything's the devil, you know. For I won't try to. Younger, I won't do her younger accent. Younger listeners, but. yeah. For younger listeners, that's a movie with Adam Sandler. From it's the, a it's a uh, movie. You yeah. could watch it on VHS back in the day. It's probably not funny to you at all it's, now. And for some reason, we all thought this was funny at the time. Probably deeply offensive, cancelable <laughs> things. You, in that, have movie. you actually watched any of the Jim Carrey comedy movies from the early '90s that, at the time, I thought were hilarious? As an I, adult, I have. It's, I, I w- it's a little painful. <laughs> I would say Dumb and Dumber holds up resoundingly strong, but the basically the, the rest, rest are horrific. It was the, really ma- hard the mask to watch. is one of the most obnoxious things. <laughs> Don't I've forget ever Liar Liar. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say we've gotten off topic, but no, I think this is right on the money for the. We com- might have ditched. <laughs> we might have gone to the the other ditch then. So if, the, if one ditch is monasticism, the other ditch would be what. I would call it syncretism, which uh, is kind of a fancy theological word, maybe. But you probably the, the idea of syncing up, if most people are familiar mm-hmm. with, like it's the idea of basically your your love of the world, not buffered by the other side of this equation, uh, leads you to just wholly embrace the things of the world. As you said, there's no distinction between you and the world. You just kind of go with the flow on everything. Jesus can't really call you into anything distinct or separate. He doesn't really have a better or deeper or truer vision for things. You're just kind of, yeah, world's great. I'm, I'm kind of just along for whatever, whatever comes up and uh, mm-hmm. easily blown about by the wind in that way. 
Okay, so I thought it might be helpful to distinguish then you're you're using this term frequently, the world. Yeah. You know, and and I, and I think if you're if you're an outsider to Christianity, you might hear language like that and almost roll your eyes. What what does and it's using that you you brought John into this, first John and John, uh John frequently uses quote the world. Uh, it's cosmos in the Greek in the mm-hmm. Greek language. The world. What does that mean? Like, what is the world when you say it like that? Well, the world exactly. Cosmos. It's kind of a flexible term. It can mean there. I would maybe say three big buckets of what it could mean. How it's used in the New Testament. First is to talk about everything that God's created. Uh, the on cosmology. Our, on our, yeah. yeah, the entire created. We would say universe. Uh, Author of Genesis probably wouldn't, but the entire created universe, everything that's been made, uh, the features of our planet, just the world around us. That's I think that's how colloquially most of us use that term. Um, the second is kind of referring to the world of men and women, the world of humanity, uh, the world's culture and the things that we produce and the ideas that are in the air. That idea comes up a lot and that can be positive. But the third idea that you can clearly see First John reaching for here is that idea narrowed down to sort of the the human ideas and culture and systems that are actually arrayed in opposition to God. So mm-hmm. the world is set in contrast to the things of God in, when, he, when they're using it in that way. So a, a, any human organization or pattern of belief or thought or whatever that is rejecting the, the will and the rule of God... Uh, is a representative of this this kind of negative idea of the world. So that's a really great yeah. point to raise Garland when we're studying our bibles knowing a you know you know knowing the word that underlies these is great but we have to then actually understand which which way are these yeah. authors using yeah. them Co- context mm-hmm. helps us decide that but yeah it's mm-hmm. it's not so simple all the time. Yeah. So so then if that's how John uses it where's he where's he getting this idea? I mean how do we how do we orient to how so in the passages you read earlier one of the things you might react to that is go, okay, well, it says for me, a human, I shouldn't love the world, but I guess God does. And so is it that simple or where would we might get some, some language to understand how God could say he loves the world, but then tell us not love to not love the world. How, how would you unpack that? Yeah, I would maybe say, I wouldn't make a clean distinction between the things that God loves and the things that we love. I mean, we are we are meant to pattern our entire lives and our loves after God. Um, God tells us to to love our enemies <laughs> and, and so on and so forth. Right. So I think the tension comes here because if we see that God clearly loves the world to the extent that he will give his son to redeem it, um, everyone virtually understands that as, oh, we are to love the world in the same way. We are to love the world Mm -hmm. sacrificially. We don't have the eternal Mm -hmm. son of God to offer (laughs) for that love, but we are to love the world with our whole selves in the same way that he does. Not in in a way that John's, you know, forbidding in in the the letter of 1 John. So we might even see some roots of this back at the beginning of the Bible, like some of the the way that the story unfolds. Does that... I, I come to my mind is like God made everything, but then we messed it up. You know, how would yeah. you unpack that for us? Yeah, I would. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. We can jump all the way back to the first pages of the Bible as we often do. And uh, we, we get a wonderful kind of category framer for this in just the story of the creation and the fall. I mean, we've recounted it on this podcast a number of times. I won't belabor it here, but I'll just go straight to Genesis one thirty one. That's kind of summarizing God's activity after he's finally culminated creation with the creation of man and woman, he says, verse 31, God saw everything that he had made, that's the world, and behold, 
it was very good. And there was morning, evening and morning, the sixth day. And so even here in the narrow idea, you know, take, or I'm taking that broadest category of the world as all that God has made. Here is a clear definition <laughs> that it is good. It is good. Mm-hmm. He made it beautiful. He made it enjoyable. And if you dive into this passage, you see that like all these good features are for humanity to enjoy and for humanity to celebrate. I mean, the Garden of Eden, uh, Eden itself means delight. Like God has made the world good for his glory and for the enjoyment of his image bearers, men and women. I hear you frequently say language, uh, and and we don't. I, I've kind of picked it up from you a little bit. This this idea of the the cultural mandate or human flourishing is that where you're getting that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, if you look at the original task given to humanity uh, just before the verse we just read, it's it's be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, and we you could go on and read all the beautiful little things in that passage. But the idea, I think, I think most scholars agree, is that as beautiful as the garden was, where humanity was situated, the world is just full of this beautiful raw potential, and the humans are given the task of multiplying and going out to cultivate, to take the raw materials and extend the the beauties and the pleasures of the garden to the ends of the earth. Uh, that's what we call the cultural the cultural mandate. And if you forget that, if you forget that that's the original task given to humanity, all kinds of things, especially in this conversation, start to go sideways, I think. So that sounds that sounds very positive. Like, I'm hearing from you, let's get out there, culture matters, be a part of it. Um, I'm assuming you're taking us to... The, the, the story that in there, you know, that's not the end of the story nope, of Genesis that's, that's 1. That's the so end what, of the story. That's all so I've read. There just, yeah, there's, there's just <laughs> no, like, uh, I, I think many, I think... It's, it's helpful to start there, as I do think I hear many Christians, especially many Christians when, say, their political party is not, not in power or when things are going maybe a little bit uh, haywire or sideways as they would expect things to go culturally, um, or just flat out when, when things that look evil and unjust seem to win and triumph. Like, uh, I can hear somebody say, well, culture... That's too rosy of a too rosy of a view about culture. There's got to be more to it than that. So where would you where would you maybe hem that in a little? Yeah, I would just jump ahead to Genesis three uh, because you can't you know understand the world we live in now without understanding the fall that's taken place. Obviously, Adam and Eve they disobey God. Uh, they introduce sin and death and injustice and sickness, all this evil stuff into the world. And just listen to God's words to Adam in Genesis 3, starting in 17. To Adam, he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." Oh my gosh, there's so much we could say there, but um, mm-hmm. I think in short, clearly we see that the, the the kind of very, very goodness of the world, it's not that it's been lost, but it's been marred. It's been compromised in some way. And now there is a level of difficulty and challenge and toil and struggle and adversity that's introduced into the world. Um, it doesn't lay it out specifically, but of course we know theologically this was the moment where sin and like the sin nature that infects all of us, every person that's ever been born has entered. And so now as we have all these people continuing, we are 
we are being fruitful and multiplying, but now every time people expand out, they're also carrying sin with them and evil with them and capacity for great injustice with them. And so that extends to their cultural kind of works and everything else. So we still have a good world that God loves, that God uh, promises at the end of the Bible. He's going to fully redeem and restore and recreate and uh, put all things right. Uh, but in the here and now, this beautiful, good world is also marred with difficulty and sin. Um, mm-hmm. And so we have to have both of those ideas together, I think, to do justice to these themes. So what's fascinating, and, and I'm just, just kind of my head, coming into my head right now, when we, when we look at Genesis, I mean, Genesis 1 to 11, a lot of scholars call the prologue of the biblical narrative, almost the introduction, we might say. Um, it's giving us grand sweeping categories and grand sweeping narratives, and um, it's sometimes hard to place their dating and all that stuff, but it's just introducing us to the world as we see it and know it. It's interesting that um, that big grand prologue to the Bible called Genesis 1 to 11, as culture begins to form, I'm thinking of Lamech in Genesis 4. Mm. Lamech builds a culture, he builds a city, and it's on his boast of his his arrogance and power. By the time that prologue ends, we get the famous, uh, I say famous, maybe it's not, maybe it's more infamous, or maybe it's not all that infamous or famous, but the Tower of Babel story as um, uh, humanity comes together to create. But what do they create? Not not human flourishing for God's glory, but instead they're using technology, they're using culture to build a name for themselves, almost like as if the story's saying, when culture tries to go it their own way, we might call that quote unquote, the world, when they try to go it their own way, it leads to this arrogant building up of their own glory, which of course, when humans are fighting each other for their own glory, necessarily creates conflict. It necessarily yeah. creates corruption. It necessarily creates a situation where I want my glory. I want my glory. Our city wants our glory. Your city wants your glory. Our nation, your nation. What is that? It creates the very conflict that we see. So culture and uh, flourishing and hum- human capacity, both good and beautiful, Genesis 1, but then... Yeah, you're, I think as you were saying that, that you know, cultural mandate, it seems as if by the time we finish Genesis 11, mar, yeah, marred is a good word. I'm trying to think of a good word, like marred and now touched with sin, but mm-hmm. still there. Okay, so there's a t- I can feel the tension. You set the tension up well for me. God has a really beautiful design for what we get to do, for our role to play. That's an amazing calling, a vocation, and yet... It's always going to be a struggle. Like, it's always going to be of a fight, a little bit of a fight. Okay, we're still in the prologue. Now what? <laughs> okay, now what? We've got Jesus hits the scene in the biblical story. What, is, what does Jesus have to say? How do we handle this now? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I mean, you could, you could talk endlessly <laughs> about what Jesus has to say about this, but... I just, I just love the way that in his own ministry and life, he modeled so many of these features. I mean, I'm struck by the fact that Jesus, for the first 30 years of his life, well, maybe, well once he became a working young adult, uh, he just worked in obscurity as a carpenter for a while. He, he did mm-hmm. what we might think of as, world, to use our terminology, worldly work, um, building good things out of materials for, to bless mm-hmm. people, for people to use. Uh, as he goes about his ministry, he's not afraid of sin. He's constantly accused of being a drunk and being because he's so close. He's so proximus to to sinners, broken people, the people yeah, he came people. to seek and save, the people mm-hmm. that he loves. Uh, he wasn't a drunk himself, but he he was 
he was in deep relationship consistently with them. And so you just see in Jesus, God coming close to this world that he loves, never giving himself over to the things that have marred the world, over to the sins that damage it. Uh, but, but just also not scandalized, not afraid, not afraid to call people out of their sin, but also not afraid to love people in their sin. And so you could just devote through this lens, you know, years of study in the gospels mm-hmm. of looking at how Jesus models this tension so beautifully. Um, but yeah, I don't know if you had somewhere yeah. you wanted to go with that yeah, specifically. Maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe most pointedly, just even thinking about that, it's interesting when he gives his, his sermon, we might say, on his kingdom people, his ethic. What does it look like to be uh, in the, co- the covenant community of, of a Jesus follower? We call it the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you're like a city, a city built on a hill. Uh, you're the light. You're the light of the world. A city built on a hill can't be hidden. But notice the language: light pushes into darkness, mm. but it does so. He says that they may see your good works. It's just a very fascinating picture. It's like a a different way to be human inside the city. A city in the city. A new kind of culture in the culture. Okay. The question then becomes: This is the heart of this this episode. All right, I'm listening to this. I go, okay, that's cool. Uh, you know, Jesus, city in the city. Okay, how do I interact with my city then? Yeah. <laughs> like, how do I go out there to the broken stuff in my city, my neighbor, the person that coaches my kids, uh, you know, football team, flag football team? Like, what? how do I interact with the culture? Yeah, that's a great question. So maybe just to recap before I answer that, what we've laid out so far is if you go to Genesis, you have a couple things about the world, the whole entire created world. You have that it's very, very good, and you have that it's now cursed as a result of the fall. You have human image bearers, people who carry the image of God. They are his representatives, his co-rulers and laborers in the, in the created world. They are deemed very good, and they are also now sinful and you know, rejected from the garden. Uh, then, if we, if we go back to our, our discussion from, from the writings of John, you've got a call, do not love the world. Uh, in the sense of all these evil things that uh, that third sense we talked about, kind of the, the evil culture that's arrayed against God. God has nothing to do with that. We need to flee it. We don't love it. We need to be distinct from it. But then also a call to love the world in the John 316, <laughs> 316 sense uh, with everything that we have, which ties into, I think, you're, what you're saying, some of these um, Sermon on the Mount ideas for our application. So with all of that, yeah, the question remains, okay, so what do I do? I think half of what we just wanted to do in this episode was to get our listeners to just be thinking in terms of these tensions rather than just gravitating to the side of that that we might prefer. But more mm-hmm. specifically, I, I would maybe uh, want to go to an idea. I first remember hearing from Tim Keller, um, which, uh, man, rest in peace, Tim, legitimately. It's amazing that he's with with the yeah. Father now. But a he life was, well lived. Yeah. yeah, he was such a, uh, I know, an influence on on both of us and, and so many. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember a sermon he gave, it probably was a series of sermons. I'm sure he revisited this a number of times. I'm probably letting them bleed together in my head, but on Jeremiah chapter 29, which is, um, in this particular chapter, Jeremiah uh, writes this letter that gets delivered to the people of Israel in exile, um, in Babylon. And they are basically, he, he gives them their marching orders. What is life supposed to look like in this time of exile? When we're not in our land, we're not among our people, we're in a strange land, we are being oppressed, we're with people who don't share our culture and values, what are we supposed to do? And I just want to read this for us. I'll read verses four through nine. The start of the letter. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. And it goes on, and there's uh, obviously more important stuff there. Uh, but Keller helpfully pointed out just like three possibilities in what, in, in what this is calling to. First, the first possibility that he eliminates is the idea of assimilation. And we get that most specifically there when he's talking about these prophets. There are prophets who are just going to be go along to get along, claiming to uh, speak on God's behalf, who are leading them into error. And so the thing he concludes these verses with is, don't just go along with everything that, <laughs> that might be presented to you as you're in exile. There will be times where you have to remove yourself. You have to go a different way. You have to say no, and it might cost you. And so the first thing he, he rejects here is any idea of towards assimilation, just giving yourself over to the thing. But this, notice that the opposite of that was like, okay, we don't assimilate. Maybe we should just separate, just make our holy huddle, just get distinct and separate. And he says, no to that either. Look how involved the picture is here. Build houses, live in them, make yourself at home, plant. By the way, there's tons of Genesis 1 and 2 imagery yeah, here. I can hear the Genesis in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> plant gardens, eat and multiply. There's that cultural mandate stuff mm -hmm. uh, it, very, very specifically in here. Have families, you know, be excited about your kids getting married and building their own families. So anyone who might read this and go, oh, well, man, Israel, they just got to make their holy huddle. Don't do, you know, don't have anything to do with the surrounding world that they find themselves in is immediately challenged by this. So you, mm -hmm. he's, he's ruling out assimilating. He's ruling out separating. What, what do we do then? The key is in verse seven there. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And I remember at one point, I remember Keller using the word cultivate for this in distinction from assimilate and separate. The idea, this is a distinction-filled love and sacrifice towards the world, towards the city they find themselves in. So yes, mm -hmm. we have our distinctions, uh, but we are going to refuse to just hate the people and the world around us. We are going to keep our distinctions, but we are going to love and serve this city for if this city prospers, it's for our good, it's for our neighbor's good, and it's to God's glory. The, the city that, that Jeremiah is addressing, this is, for, for an ancient Israelite, this is Babylon. Like this represents the, worst. The, yeah, the empire that destroyed your temple, destroyed your, this, destroyed your city, um, that killed thousands of your brothers and sisters, um, that represents the epitome of the pagan, uh, you know, polytheist, worship of other gods, idolatrous, unjust city. Uh, like it's, it's, it's not as if they found themselves uh, in some beautiful utopia. Instead, this is the very people that were oppressing them. And what you're probably expecting if you're the exile living in ancient Babylon in this letter is, or in, in this letter is, hey, get the weapons ready, yep. wait for the right time, and then go get yours. Yeah. But this is such a different account. Now, I gotta put I gotta I gotta put this to you though. Okay. This is a, a letter written to Old Testament exiles 
who were living under the Babylonian Empire. They were Jews. What does that I'm not that. I'm a New Testament Jesus follower. So where would be... Um, I, How do we apply this? Very, yeah, yeah. this is very urgent for me because uh, in our church context down here in Northwest Arkansas in Fayetteville, we just spent a summer. Uh, so I'm setting you up even though I have the answer in my own brain. Why don't you just I'm give setting it? you up. Yeah, uh, so um, I don't know why I'm trying to put you on the spot. <laughs> um, so I think it's easy then, I guess, to say. I'll just say it. It's easy to go... Okay, but that's Old Testament. That's that's Israel. That's that's a real kind of exile. Yeah. Like I'm, I didn't get I didn't get removed from my home. I'm not an immigrant. Um, although it, it is totally worth saying, and you do a good job reminding us of this all the time. There are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Jesus followers right now who are living in exile, who are actual physical immigrants. Yeah. And so yeah. sometimes Americans like myself could have a hard time understanding that there are a lot of Christians that this is exactly their case in our world right now. And sometimes it's because they are a follower of Jesus. But as I, as I see that, the, there are New Testament examples of this exact same idea. We, we spent the summer reading 1 Peter. And in 1 Peter, oh, yeah. I'll just read uh, a little section of 1 Peter's two verses. Uh, Peter, now he's writing to people living in ancient, the ancient Roman Empire that are trying to follow Jesus. And as they do so, they're basically ostracized from their culture. They're feeling the weight of that. And he says things like this, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. Now listen to what he says, abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. There's that, that tension. I got to stay separate, but mm -hmm live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing good, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So there's the tension. Wait, do I go in and, and uh, do good to the city or do I separate out? And I think that drawing us to the tension and saying to assimilate is an extreme, to separate would also be an extreme, but to cultivate mm -hmm. wisely, um, you know, with like with probably the community around us to help us all see our blind spots, which I'm going to ask you about in a minute, cultivate, I think first Peter, what Jesus says in a certain amount will be some of these places where we can get an insight from a new Testament perspective on what that might look like. Okay. Let me ask you this then. Yeah. Uh, pastorally. How do we navigate this? There's different personalities. There's different cities. Uh, there's different places that maybe people even listen to this podcast may find themselves. Any advice? Yeah, I think recognize, I think just asking the question is so huge to recognize like every individual place and culture we find ourselves in will have its unique idols, centers of gravity that are exerting their force on all of us. I can think very specifically of what it was like for me to move from Northwest Arkansas to Portland 10 years ago. Growing up in Northwest Arkansas, born and raised, I you know, you're, you're kind of blind to the water that you're swimming in, you know, that what is water idea. And right. I remember it was, it wasn't until I moved to Portland that I realized how many things for good and challenging things there were about growing up in Bible Belt culture in, in Fayetteville, because suddenly I'm in a world where all the values that are just kind of subtly in the air, the things you're hearing from people, the things that are on TV and the things that people are talking about, it's just all filtered through a, a very, very different sort of post-Christian lens. And what, it, what I came to realize is that the culture in Northwest Arkansas, it had things about it that were scaffolding my faith in Jesus. And then it had things about it that were trying to subtly pull me and corrode my faith in Jesus toward, toward mm -hmm. some other end. And the same was true in Portland. There were things about Portland culture that 
that were pushing me towards some of the things I see in the New Testament, but there were plenty of things that were just trying to corrode me and distract me and distort, mm-hmm. uh, distort sort of faithful obedience to Jesus. Mm-hmm. The problem is whenever you just assume the threats are always in the same place wherever you are, they're always coming from the same direction, and they're they're often mm-hmm. not. Every family is different, every city is different, every region's different, so on and so forth. And I think it's learning to just be deeply connected and abiding in Christ, daily communing with him so that you have, you begin over time to get the eyes to see like, oh man, I know everyone I know thinks this way, but it seems like mm-hmm. Jesus would call me a different direction. It's, it'll be harder on some things depending on where you live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just reminds me that, it, you know, Paul says in first Corinthians, he says, take every thought captive. Um, and I think, you know, being aware, Paul will also say it in Romans, he says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. I think the idea there is we're all being conformed to something, yeah. whether we like it or not, either the transforming power of the spirit or to the cultural whims and norms around us. And sometimes if we're not alert to those things, we may miss them. Uh, and I think that's really helpful. It also becomes imperative to have uh, your church family, a, a co- gospel yeah. community around you, because all of us have blind spots where we may not get this right. Um, I know maybe I'll just speak for myself and use IB statements, but I know I certainly, I certainly do. Um, okay, well, th- I mean, this is a lot. This, this might spawn other episodes. Yeah. Um, and so Hopefully I think so. there's a lot that, that we have to walk through here. Well, I think it sounds like you wanted just to let us see the tension. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that, is that right? Absolutely. Okay. I, yeah, we've, we fully acknowledge, I fully acknowledge, we, have, we always say this, we've only scratched you know, an inch deep into this. But I do think that's a really good starting place. How are you, whoever you are listening, and how am I here speaking, supposed to relate to the world? I have to take all of this complex, uh, you know, these complex ideas in the scripture and find a way to meaningfully put them together. And I think you start mm-hmm. by just acknowledging like there is a way in which I can love the world faithfully, and there's a way in which I need to not love the world in order to maintain faithfulness. And mm-hmm. um Let's start there and let's see, man, what are, what are your proclivities? What are mine? Where maybe do I naturally drift? And uh, mm-hmm. how might I be more faithful yeah. in the years to come? Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's given us a lot to think about. And if you're out there listening to this and you go, okay, yeah, but what about? Uh, just send that in. Send yeah, it in on our do. Instagram or send that in on YouTube, on the comments, and just let us know. Okay, yeah, but what about, you know, private school, public school, uh, Christian school, yeah. you know, Christian movies, Christian music, all that stuff. But what abouts? All those what abouts, uh, send them in, and we'll try to do our best to uh, to maybe maybe throw an episode in together and, and uh, just together uh, kind of have this conversation. So a uh, lot to think about, Cameron. Uh, thank you for sorting it out and get a <laughs> teeing it up for us. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll try to navigate it faithfully as best we can. And as always, thanks for listening to Out of Curiosity. Thank you for listening to this episode of Out of Curiosity. If you found it helpful, please consider leaving us a review and sharing it with a friend. To suggest a topic, reach out to us on Instagram at OO Curiosity. We'll see you next time.